Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, your number one podcast for any orthopedic information and knowledge. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into part two of our episode featuring Dr. Strelzo on proximal humerus fractures. So if you have not listened to part one, go ahead and look a couple episodes back and listen to that where we really talked about the anatomy and uh, we talked about the physiology and kind of the different things with these fractures. But now we are going to get into the treatment. And at the end of this, we actually have some cases that he goes over. Now, if you do not have, uh, if you do not follow us on YouTube yet, go and check us out on our YouTube channel. We left the audio here because, you know, it's good to hear some of the things. But if you actually want to see the x-rays that we're looking at, please go and check us out on YouTube at Nailed It Ortho. So without further ado, please enjoy the rest of the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, getting into treatment because, uh, you know, there are a lot of different studies on treatments depending on, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, the physiological age and activity of the patient. Uh, but kind of just starting off with like displaced uh, or minimally displaced one part fractures or non-displaced fractures, what is your typical treatment algorithm for these patients? Yeah, uh, so for for patients that we're doing non-operative treatment, I think the the keys there are getting them comfortable and then getting them moving as early as possible. Um, you know, the shoulder, like the elbow, is an extremely unforgiving joint, and so if you leave it immobilized for too long, you're going to find that they become stiff, and then it's really a battle of stiffness rather than bony healing. So I generally use a collar and cuff. Uh, type of, of sling, um, but a regular old sling can also work. I just like to have patients um, have gravity kind of help assist pull and push the fracture fra fragments and hold the fracture fragments in position. So typically those patients are for the first two weeks um, using the collar and cuff or sling really for comfort more than anything else. Um, and then at the two week mark, we start some pendulum exercises and then depending on the fracture fragments and the fracture locations, if I think it's not one that's gonna displace with some overhead activities, I'll start around the four week mark with active assisted range of motion. And if it's a quote unquote higher risk fracture pattern, so maybe a GT fragment that is you know, looking like it's trying to follow the pull of the, uh, the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, I may push that out to six weeks. And, okay. then, uh, and then by the three month mark, they should be weight bearing is tolerated and activity is tolerated. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great algorithm. And one question I did have about that, is because I've heard multiple or, or different attendings have different uh, viewpoints, even here in my own institution, as far as, you know, acutely, do we put these patients to a cuff and collar sling? Uh, for one, just like you just said, you kind of let gravity help, you know, help, um, uh, with some of the reduction, kind of just, you know, getting some length versus that there are people on the other side say you put them in an abduction pillow sling, which helps uh, lateralize part of the, uh, of that distal segment since the pec is pulling it medial. And they said that that helps a little bit more as far as with overall alignment. So is it, have you heard, I guess, have you heard the, the you know, the other argument behind it and, you know, is there really any consensus or is it kind of really like, you know, mostly up to surgeon preference? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it pretty much is surgeon preference at this point. Um, 
there, I, I don't know of, and there may be, but I, I don't know of any uh, good studies to show me, you know, collar and cuff or sling or, or various other contraptions for patients have led to differing, differing outcomes. Um, in, in my practice, the collar and cuff seems to be best tolerated. Um, and, and I think I see less problems with it, but certainly okay. I, I don't know. I don't know of any good evidence to say that's the right or the wrong move, so to speak. Okay. And so for patients that have um, isolated greater tuberosity fractures, uh, what is your treatment algorithm for them? Yeah, the, so isolated GT fractures are, are an interesting beast because really this is a soft tissue, this is a soft tissue injury, not necessarily a, bo- a bony injury, although there's a, a bony injury component. But like we talked about, these are, these are cuff tears essentially. Um, and so the markers and the indications are, are still in flux. I think, you know, if you look at historically, the numbers to remember are one centimeter uh, of translation and, and, and sort of almost any angulation, but 45 has been the one quoted traditionally. Truthfully, in, in my practice, in a young, healthy, active person, I will, I will talk to them um, and discuss almost any displacement I can see on an x-ray would, would lend me to at least offer an operation. And I think, you know, that's been borne out by a couple of recent studies showing that patients, even with as little as three millimeters have some functional, functional loss with respect to strength and overhead activity. Um, and, and so definitely in the, in the very young, healthy, active patient, three millimeters is sort of the new, new standard, but uh, again, uh, up to five millimeters can be tolerated. So that's sort of where I look at. And then depending on the type of injury, uh, and I, what I mean by that is the size of the bony fragment and the position of the bony fragment, I'm either doing an all suture repair technique, sort of like a quote unquote rotator cuff or sports repair, or using either a small buttress plate or as your x-rays uh, on this on the skin on the uh, imaging here show two two uh, screws and then tie over it with some fiber wire suture to really get you that soft tissue repair and i think that's the critical part and when you're doing just the the suture um the suture technique so are you you're suturing the you're putting sutures through the um uh through the supersonatus tendon and tacking it down where are you are you putting some intraosseous sutures or what, what are you exactly are you doing? Exactly. It's sort of the, I think the buzz phrase is uh, transosseous equivalent <laughs> repair, mm. but uh, exactly like you described, I, I, I put lateral, lateral drill holes. I have suture fiber wire, number five fiber wire tippy, you know, in a sort of um, Mason Allen um, rip stitch through the infra and supraspinatus. Uh, and then I take big bites as, as close to the bony fragments as possible uh, at the insertion of the GT and then basically overstitch the bony fragment down onto its bed and then through the transosseous repair. So you're really getting a, a suture repair of the tendon and then the suture is also driving the bone down onto its, onto its bony bed through transosseous sutures. Okay. And, and any difference between if you're fixing it with just screw fixation, um, can sell screws versus fully cortical screws? Uh, what, what, I mean, in your practice, what, what do you use? Three, five screws or 
two seven or yeah so I, I like to go smaller because i think the heads can be bothersome for patients um but it is a it is a bit of a balancing act between pull out strength patient bone you know luckily most of these gt fragments or luckily or unluckily i should say are in young patients um and so bone quality in the head is as good as it's ever going to be um it's typically not great so a two seven you know if you can get a two seven cancella screw i think that can be helpful to give you a little bit extra bite um but really these are these are all like the tent pegs in your, you know, tent pegs in the sand. So it's not so much that the force is a direct axial force is actually more of a bending force. Um, and so I, I use them more like stakes or pegs than I do as a, a compression screw, so to speak. Mm, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And so what about your, your two part, um, greater tuberosity fractures, or I guess in fracture dislocations, what, what is your treatment algorithm uh, for these? Yeah, this is where the, this is where it gets pretty muddy. So, um, you know, as we go sort of, and probably this will apply to the two part, the three part, the four part fractures, um, with the exception of probably fracture dislocations, but, um, this is where a discussion with the patient, I think really, uh, becomes critical and understanding not just their, their age, but also their physiologic level, their physiologic uh, capacity, and then what they want to get back to. And so uh, I, I typically tell them, look, there's no right answer. Uh, I start with that, um, particularly in the, we're going to say young elderly. So in a patient who is somewhere north of 55 to 60 years old. Um, I think if you look at the evidence, the evidence for fixing all of them and not, or not fixing all of them or replacing them all uh, is pretty sketchy. Yeah. In a young patient with a two-part fracture, um, that's a very different, different conversation. Um, Those I say, look, I don't have strong evidence to tell me that it is going to make you better. But I, the risks of having the complications of the operation and the risks of having a stiff or you know loss of function with respect to the shoulder are higher. Um, and then we're talking some type of either open reduction internal fixation, depending on the fracture pattern, uh, or humeral nail, or um, potentially non-operative. Okay, uh, that, that makes sense. And then does it does it change um, whether or not if it's a two part of the greater tuberosity versus a, a two part including the lesser tuberosity fracture? Yeah, that that's a good question. So I, I think that we probably are under treating a lot of lesser tuberosity fractures, and actually, from a functional perspective, uh, a lesser tuberosity fracture can be equally as debilitating, if not more, um, particularly uh, given the fact that. An, an LT fracture typically tells you that not only is their subscap deficient, i.e. they're not going to have power for internal rotation and uh, a block to sort of stabilize the shoulder, but also they typically have biceps pathology. So these patients frequently complain of bicipital irritation, bicipital subluxation, um, and their shoulder just doesn't feel right. And so I, I'm pretty aggressive with lesser tuberosity fractures. Um, and again, in a young patient, it's a lot easier to, to say, look, I, I can make you better, or I think I can make you better by fixing this. Um, 
in the older patient, again, I think an LT, a displaced LT fracture is probably going to do better with surgical management. But again, uh, the evidence would, <laughs> would challenge that assertion. And then for these lesser tuberosities, like, so for the greater tuberosities, you're not necessarily getting a, I mean, you're not going bicortical because if you go bicortical, you'll be intraarticular. Uh, but for these lesser tuberosity fractures, do you, are you typically going bicortical with these if you are fixing them or are you just, are you going unicortical or what, what are you, um, are you using three, five screws, two, seven screws? What's your uh, treatment of choice? I know it sometimes it depends on the fracture pattern, but uh, you know, typically what is your, your, uh, your algorithm? Yeah, I treat these almost the same as a GT fracture. So they're going to get a, uh, a suture repair, and then they will also uh, they will also get screw repair. So for the for the LT fragments, particularly if they're big enough, uh, again they're going to get two seven screws um, as their sort of initial stabilizing um, fixation, and then I will often also offload that with a again a Mason Allen or whip stitch through the um, the subscap um, mm. tendon and then bring that usually in the same location that I do a biceps tenodesis. Cause for, for many of these patients, the biceps is disrupted. Uh, either it's torn, partially torn, very irritated or subluxated. And in those patients, I think doing a biceps tenodesis, pulling the subscap over and kind of all anchoring that down into either one or two anchors can be really helpful. Okay. And, and, and what do you do for your surgical neck fraction? And we just talked about the greater and lesser tuberosities, but now we're getting into, you know, uh, a little bit of the, the surgical neck fractures. What do you, what is your algorithm? I know we've been kind of, kind of uh, organizing into younger and older patients, but so what, what do you, what do you typically do for these? Yeah, again, um, We'll, we'll say that in the older kind of infirmations, these are probably going to be non-operative um, or patients that are, are um, of lesser demand for their shoulders. In the ones that are clearly, um, clearly displaced from the shaft, I, I offer them an operation. Typically, uh, if it's an isolated two-part fracture, either with an intramedullary nail or with a, a locking plate on the lateral, lateral side, and then it depends a little bit, you know, on, on how common they are and what their displacement pattern is. So a lot of these fractures, again, if they are isolated two parts and they're high enough in the, the surgical neck, they'll, they'll tip in the varus. And I think, you know, the rule number one in orthopedics is thou shall not varus. So yeah. really forcing them out of varus um, is critical. And I think in young patients, you know, getting a locking plate on the lateral side to kind of prevent that or getting a, a humeral nail that's medial enough and really um, restoring their natural, um, their natural head valgus is really important. Now I've, you know, I've read and I've looked in, you know, they talk about like in places where there's, you know, a bunch of metaphyseal comminution that one of the treatments would be to, you could possibly nail these uh, is does I know that that's not you know always set in stone, but would this also be, for example, like if somebody had a lot of high metaphyseal combination medially and they're in a bunch of varus, whenever you may use like a, a fibula strut um, allograft, or do you, well, I guess my question is when do you decide between a nail versus using a fibula strut allograft versus just using like your uh, your that inferior uh, that medial calcar screw that that locks in place to help support that. 
to support that neck. I, how do you choose between those? Yeah, that's um, that's a that's I'm I'm still playing with that. I I yeah. don't know if I have the right answer. I think um, in older patients, I am a little bit worried about strut grafting, so fibular strut grafting for augmentation or cement augmentation, only because going back in there if they should fail or need a you know replacement of their shoulder that can be a significantly more troublesome experience. Um, yeah. uh, just, you know, having had that, having had that experience a few times, uh, it kind of turned me off to it, but certainly uh, having medial, medial support with a graft or with a structural graft can be very helpful. Um, you know, when to nail, I think uh, polytrauma for me, and that's part of my practice is certainly an area where I think nailing can be very helpful. And if you ask the Europeans, I mean, the Europeans nail a lot of fractures that in at least North America, we would typically plate. Mm. Um, so I think that's a little bit of sort of what you're used to, what comfortable with. But if you go back to the biomechanics of a nail, it actually probably makes a lot of sense, um, particularly in those fracture patterns with poor bone or poor metaphyseal bone where we're asking a laterally based plate to do a lot um, and, and really to provide that sort of anti-varus support based on a couple of screws put nice and low in, in, in the neck may not be enough support to help some of these heads really stay put and heal. So um, I think a nail can be very helpful, but I think it's also very technically challenging to get to get right, particularly when the fracture patterns are a little more complex. And have you noticed that patients, you know, cause one of the things they always ask on tests is that, you know, um, patients with, uh, that are nailed or that, that are treated with an intermediary nail inserted through, uh, through the humeral head may have an increased risk of, you know, rotate, rotator cuff dysfunction and shoulder pain in your practice. Have you noticed that? Or when, you know, when you spend your time overseas, did you notice anything, anything there in those patients? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely historically that is 100% true. So the design of most previous generation humeral nails were, was lateral or what we call bald spot uh, insertion. And for those nails, we went straight through the footprint of the cuff. Um, and those patients 100% had, uh, had shoulder pain. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they just, they had shoulder pain. There's no doubt yeah, about it. Um, our new nailing techniques, are they better? I don't think we have an answer for that just yet, but certainly it appears as if a more medial start point. So paradoxically, the more you go onto the head, the more you're likely to be sort of intramuscular versus the tendon mm. and therefore more likely to have patients that don't have sort of insertional cuff pain. There's been a couple of randomized studies to show that that is probably true um, and that the newer techniques and newer nails don't have as much shoulder pain. I, I, I tell all patients, if I'm thinking about doing a nail, look, shoulder pains are very real possibility. And I don't know if that's from the injury, if that's from the nail or a combination. Um, but I, I definitely do think there, there's something to be said there and, and certainly something important to tell your patients, much the way we tell you know, a tibial nail patient, look, 
I'm going to put a nail in your knee and it's really going to hurt. And you're probably going to have knee pain for at least a year after we do this tibial nail um, because we're violating a joint that doesn't, you know, doesn't need to be violated. Yeah, that's true. I think it's always good to know that to be able to uh, counsel the patients and let them know what to expect. That way they at least heard it. So then when it happens, they can't say like, you never said anything, you know, kind of (laughs) part of it goes into the uh, art of doctoring, I guess you could call it. And, uh, and, and, uh, continuing on to our three and four part fractures, uh, what is your, you know, cause you know, I know that some of this can be, well, I know there are different studies showing different things as of lately, but for your three and four part fractures, how do you approach these? Yeah. And, and I think this is where, this is where building that patient relationship is super critical. These are bad injuries. And, and you know, when patients are, are suffering three and four part fractures, you know, historically and, and even more modern literature would suggest that a huge proportion of these patients are going to have problems. And is it a problem with the operation? Potentially. Is it a problem with their bone? Potentially. Is it a problem of, you know, stiffness and rehab and all those other things? And the answer is yes to all of them. Um, and so I think having a patient prepared for that is really critical. So um, if you look through if you look through the patient um, outcomes for three and four part fractures, the literature is really awash a with success and failure in both operative and non-operative uh, modalities. And so I think as long as you go into the discussion with patients about your options and really enlighten them to say, we are going to get complications regardless of what we choose here uh, and come to a patient centered decision about how you're going to go ahead. I think you will be one well, um, well protected in terms of your patients are going to feel like you did their, you you know, you did a a service for them regardless of the outcome, but you will also be well protected emotionally for when something goes bad or goes right. (laughs) Um, certainly in the young patient, we're going to talk like less than 50. We are aggressive. I think four part fractures in the younger patient, I, I think almost ubiquitously people are going to say, look, there's a risk that something bad happens that you get a complication, but overall you will be better if we get the bone closer to where it was supposed to be. As you get to the older patient, even if the fractures look horrendous, I think there is more and more of us that now say less is more. And that by going back to that treatment protocol or algorithm we talked about of getting them immobilized so their pain's controlled and then getting them moving as soon as we can, they can get great function or very functional results, even with terrible looking x-rays. Um, and then last but not least are, are those patients where you're going to go in and fix them. And really those patients are where you need to have the discussion of, Hey, if I get in there and these fragments are not reconstructed, what are we going to do? Um, and, and that's where sort of the discussion of arthroplasty becomes, um, becomes important. Yeah. And what are your, um, so what, what kind of arthroplasty are you doing? Are you doing hemi? Like, how do you decide, you know, whether you're going to do a reverse versus like a hemi arthroplasty? You know, I, I think in today's, uh, in today's paradigm, the issue with hemiarthroplasty is it is a very technically demanding procedure. Um, and so the outcomes of it have 
have almost almost everywhere across the board been poor. And so where hemiarthroplasty, I think, still has a role is in those patients that are young, say in their 40s, you know, 40s or early 50s, where you get in there and there's just nothing to nothing that you can successfully repair. And that's where um, that's where probably a hemiarthroplasty still has some role um, as a sort of a bailout in between where you're going to give them something. Even if it doesn't function perfectly, it's better than nothing. Um, And so that's where I think hemiarthroplasty still has a a big role as a primary treatment modality. Um, and, And so in those patients that let's say their head is just completely gone or you really can't get articular surface restored, those patients are probably better off um, when young to undergo hemiarthroplasty. And that's sort of a staged procedure to another, another type of procedure later on. Um, the reverse is really our get out of jail card. Um, at least in my hands, I will do everything I can to fix a patient um, before I bail out to a reverse. And, and that, you know, you can argue whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, but certainly a reverse arthroplasty can be very helpful Um, particularly in those patients who you get in and you just can't fix them. Their bone quality is so, so bad. Or, uh, as you have listed here where, you know, you've tried your best, they've got a complication and they've either healed in the wrong place, haven't healed or their metalworks cut out. And suddenly now you're, you're in a spot where the joints aren't really salvageable reverse reverse shoulder can be extremely, extremely powerful in terms of getting patients some useful function. And that's really because uh, you're asking another muscle, the deltoid, to take over for the dysfunction of the, the rotator cuff. And it's really the rotator cuff that drives the recovery. So, you know, we talked about open reduction internal fixation. The critical part of that is getting the rotator cuff reduced and reduced intention that is physiologic. And the reason that hemiarthroplasty has been such a, uh, a failure, so to speak, is that getting the rotator cuff to heal around a hemiarthroplasty implant is very tough. Mm. And, and so outcomes from hemiarthroplasty are really all dependent on did the rotator cuff heal. And, and with reverse um, shoulder replacements, I don't want to say you can get away without it because certainly the outcomes of patients who've had their rotator cuff heal and have a rotator uh, and have a reverse total shoulder are better than the rotator cuff deficient rota- uh, reverse shoulder. But the reverse total shoulder does function very well, even without the, uh, the, the rotator cuff functioning at all. So. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's one of the main things that, you know, you always read about that, you know, reverses, you know, you don't need that, you know, that, that rotator cuff, you don't need the, the force coupling that they, you know, that they talk about, you know, with your healed, um, healed tuberosities and functioning rotator cuff and that you can use this, this deltoid um, is going to kind of help, uh, you know, you, you function with this reverse total shoulder and, and how you meet once you medialize that center of glenohumeral rotation, that kind of improves the labor arm, uh, for your deltoid. Sounds good. And so also what I want to talk about is, uh, kind of the implants, you know, being used for these proximal humerus fractures, 
Um, why do we use, you know, locking plates, you know, and some of the kind of pearls and pitfalls with positioning the plate uh, and, you know, kind of your screw fixation once you're actually, you know, in the operating room. So can you, what are your thoughts or, you know, what do you, what do you typically do for these? Yeah, I think those are, those are great questions. I mean, I, th I think the advent of locking technology really catapulted our ability to, to successfully treat proximal humerus fractures. You know, traditionally we had non-locking technology and um, in a bone where we can only really get unit cortical fixation in the metaphysis, right? You can't have screws poking out of the articular surface. Right. Having an ability to lock those screws and, and generate a fixed angle uh, really kind of just opened, opened the door to, to at least trying and being, you know, moderately successful at, at fixing these. So I think, uh, locking technology has helped. I think the other thing we know, and, and Mike Gardner and, and his group published a ton on this is making sure that your Calcar screws are in low. So if you had to, if someone said, Hey, here's your plate, here's three locking screws, where are you going to put them? and you don't have any other screws, you want to put the calcar screws in and you want to get as many calcar screws as low as you can. Um, and really think about that as sort of like the diving board or the platform and the superior screws in the plate are just there for extra support. Mm. But really getting those low screws, getting that calcar screw low and long, riding along the medial calcar and into the head, is really going to drive drive success for you. Uh, and then to do that, at least with our current plates, the plate's got to be on the lateral side. It's typically just, just lateral to the edge of the biceps tuberosity. So that's kind of a nice, again, we talked about the biceps groove being um, a, a landmark for, for surgery. It's, right. a, it's a landmark for your plate position, especially. Um, because if you notice, Hey, my plate's sitting on the biceps, you're not lateral <laughs> enough. You gotta get far, you gotta get it farther lateral. Right. Um, uh, and then making sure that it's not too high. Cause the other problem is if the plate sits too high, those calcar screws are going to be too high and potentially you're going to get some impingement. So really, you know, some of the newer systems for, for approximately numerous plating allow you to put some K wires in to really see the trajectory of your calcar screws. Mm. And that can drive where you're going to put the plate. So getting the plate on, getting it roughly kind of eight to 10 millimeters distal to the, the GT tip or the head of the, the tip of the head. And then seeing, Hey, where are my calcar screws going to fit? Um, and then uh, once, once you're happy with the sort of proximal distal uh, position, when you're drilling, I, I literally drill the lateral cortex only. And then I use either a drill bit uh, with my hand or just the depth gates itself to push through the metaphyseal bone because it's usually pretty poor bone anyways, and then hit the subchondral bone. And then once I'm there, I'm taking typically four or six millimeters off the screws just to make sure, because again, you're looking at a round surface through a two-dimensional image. So having penetrance uh, through the articular surfaces is obviously a no-no. Um, and so you want to, you want to get the calcar, get the bone into the subchondral bone, uh, or get the screw into the subchondral bone and then take a little bit of bone, little length off. So you're, you're avoiding penetration. And now then, these, oh yeah. No, I was going to ask about, so these plates, um, one thing, I, these plates, are they all the same angle or are they, cause I, you know, I know there's different patient morphologies. And so 
are the plates um, different, like as far as the next shaft angle? Does that matter as much? Or do you choose a plate based on different patient anatomy as far as neck shaft angle or uh, as far as uh, implant selection? Yeah, great question. You know, so for, um, for maybe 10 years ago, for the, you know, the last 20 years or what have you, we really had kind of one or two plates on the market and, and that was the Philos plate, um, you know, not to get uh, too into different brands, but, um, and that was sort of the gold standard. And, and now as we've learned more and more about the importance of things like calcar screws and calcar positioning, and then something else we didn't talk about, which is um, tension, tensioning through the rotator cuff with suture uh, to augment. Now the, the industry um, uh, has really exploded with, with different plate designs. And I think uh, each of them have their own sort of niche or their own sort of um, differences in terms of where they're putting or how they're putting their calcar screws. There's a couple companies that have um, a little jig you can put on that can change the angles of your screws, which is really helpful. Um, so the, you know, the company I use does that. Um, I, I just like it because sometimes you want to put the plate somewhere and then you're not super happy with the, the standard positioning of your calcar screws and knowing that that's the most important thing to get, sometimes you don't want to move the plate because it's doing something else in another position. Uh, and so having that flexibility of, you know, either variable angle or, or changing the angle of your, your screws can be really helpful. And then the last thing, which is sort of now in, in vogue is these tabs on the posterior aspect of the plate. So we now have additional fixation options for things like the GT fragment that's trying to escape around the back you know, the conventional plate, you really are relying on screws to get kind of capture that, which it may or may not do. And now the new plates have these sort of two, three, or sometimes four little kind of finger extensions out the back that can really help, um, help grab those posterior fragments. Yeah. I was, uh, looking at some techniques like, you know, reduction techniques and one of the things that they were saying was that, um, especially for these large greater tuberosity fragments, if that plate isn't wide enough to capture those pieces that you can put some, uh, like, you know, two, seven or two, four screws to reinforce, uh, to reinforce that, that fracture fragment and, you know, use some sutures and tie it to the plate. But I didn't know that from what you just said, that you actually have, you know, plates that have a little bit wider area so you can, um, get those screws through that fragment as well, which I think is pretty cool um and yeah, very, yeah, it's really ahead. helpful yeah no i was just gonna say uh, it's super helpful to have the extra options there and, and as far as uh reduction um techniques you know for patients that have these fracture dislocations this is just one of the i was looking reading one of the hard review books and they were just saying this is just a technique as far as if you're or reducing your humeral head and, and how you kind of sequence uh sequence your reduction and your fixation is there any way that or any tips or tricks that you've learned through your practice on when you on um, on sequencing or reduction tips or tricks uh, for you know reducing these uh, these uh, fracture dislocations and then you know fixing them, if, especially in these in these high energy injuries. Yeah, so I think there's a couple little tricks that I picked up, and and I think the the Harborview book you quote's a great one for for many of these tricks. I think number one, don't be afraid to use 
pins. So typically chance pins uh, or threaded pins that you can get into the head to get it out and get it into the position you want. Um, I think that's a really good tool. You put one or two of those in the, in the humeral head and you can really adjust it or, or position it exactly where you want to. The other one that I think people forget often is using a cob. So particularly mm -hmm. for those that are valgus impacted, get the cob right in the fracture plane and then use the cob almost like an elevator to just gradually lever the head out of varus and in, into a little bit more, you know, into a better position. Um, and then finally, in some of these really complicated ones where maybe you've got a head split or the head is, uh, you have a really high anatomic neck fracture. So the head's kind of just floating around on the glenoid. Sometimes what I've actually done, and this can be helpful, is pin the, glen, pin the head to the glenoid. So okay. get, the head, get the head in position, you know, get that angle that you want to reconstruct to, and then just pin it straight through and through into the glenoid. And now, instead of having you know, four or five moving parts, you're starting to build to something that's stable. And I think that, you know, that's one way of getting out of trouble, particularly um, in some of the complex fracture patterns. And then, you know, last but not least, and, we, you know, we kind of, we talked about this a little bit is get some suture in the, in the, the tuberosities. Because once you have suture in the tuberosities, now you've got fixation of the greater, fixation of the lesser, and you've got the, hem the, you know, the humeral head held with maybe K wires or a chance pin. And you can really now start to play with where you want to position all those fragments to get the reduction. Okay. So, you know, one thing you can use is for these uh, highly common units, you can, you can put a pin or not a pin, put a wire through, you know, just pinning the head and the glenoid and you just use a, a 0.5. What size K wire do you use for those? Uh, yeah, so it depends on uh, depends on patient and then the fragments. Typically, six twos are a nice uh, a nice size for that. Okay. Um, up to a two millimeter pin, it, you know, uh, I think is probably fine in terms of putting a hole in the glenoid. I don't think, in the scheme of these bad injuries, a, a small hole that allows you to get a perfect reduction or a close to perfect reduction is worth it every time. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, we spoke about having, we're just getting one of those bigger plates or the place to have that extension in order to get those, uh, those large, uh, greater tuberosity fragments. Now in my reading, I noticed that there was some, you know, some use of, of a universal distractor and they say, um, you know, you can use this for highly shortened and comminuted fractures and you put, you know, one pin to the coracoid and, uh, one in the shaft. Is this something that you've done before? I've seen it done. I've seen it done. I, I have not done it in my practice. Uh, I saw fellowship a couple of times, um, particularly in patients who either have been short for a long period of time um, and you're really struggling to get length. But honestly, you know, for, I've been either very fortunate or just haven't had come across those patients yet, but I have not had that problem just as of yet. Okay. And, and and then you know we know you know complications from these uh, proximal humerus fractures. One of the most common complications can be non-union, malunion. You can also have implant failure, humeral head collapse, infection, arthritis, and then hardware penetration if you're not careful enough and you and you make those screws too long and you don't take off those extra four millimeters or so like you were talking about when you're measuring, uh, or for you when you said you just drill the drill the lateral cortex and then you use 
like either a drill or, or a depth gauge to go until you hit that subchondral bone and still take off four millimeters. So um, that's something to note of. Now, I know you have some um, cases for us. Uh, we don't have too much time here, but if, if you could, if you can kind of, kind of walk us through um, um, some of these cases and, and kind of the key uh, key aspects of, uh, of fixing these or, or what, what you did to make this a, a successful case. Yeah, so you know this is this is uh, um, unfortunately it was actually a polytrauma. She she had a couple of other pretty badly injured um, limbs, and so uh, you know as you can kind of see from the quasi oblique films because these are the best imaging <laughs> that we were able to get in the trauma bay. But yeah. but certainly you know displaced uh, displaced full neck, and you get the sense maybe on that um, that kind of poor AP. Uh, in the top right there, that there's uh, maybe a potential little bit involvement of the the greater tuberosity posteriorly. Yeah. Um, and so for her, you know, just knowing number one, she's a polytrauma, so she's going to need to use her arm uh, pretty quickly here. Number two, she's pretty displaced, right? Her, you know, although you don't get a great view of the cow car, certainly the medial hinge in this one is is gone. Um, and, and the translation of the shaft medially is, is pretty significant, right? We'll take a guess at, you know, at least 75% of the shaft is at least anterior, if not meet to the, to the head. And so she's, you know, she's not at, high, at extreme high risk of having AVN, but certainly from a functional perspective, we need to get her using her arm. And so I think this is one where with, you know, a more straightforward fracture pattern, we were more aggressive to get her fixed. And so, you know, for this one, I think um, we, we decided to do a conventional plate, although in hindsight, you know, maybe would have been better to, to use one of the newer plates, although that wasn't an option at the time we did this case, but certainly uh, a conventional lateral plate using a Delta pack approach, really you can see that the Calcar screws trying to get those as low as possible and then getting as right. many of them in and as long as they possibly can be. So the screws, I don't mind trying to get as close to the articular surfaces as possible. I typically still take about four off whatever I drill. And then the superior ones, they're just there for, you know, for some additional stability. And so you see that they're, you know, as you go higher and higher, they get shorter and shorter. Um, and really just getting you fill in the, in the humeral head there. And I think we did a pretty, pretty okay job of restoring her, her general anatomy. Yeah. So these, just like you're just saying, these calcar screws of utmost importance to uh, support that calcar. Now, did you put the, was your first screw, the screw in this oblong hole, that way you could adjust your height if you needed to? Exactly. So in, in these kind of more simple patterns, I think that's a, that's a critical go-to is get it on the shaft, get the, get the plate reduced to the shaft. So I typically put that screw in first. Uh, I do it loosely so that the plate can slide up and down and then using a chance pin in the, in the head you just kind of gradually bring the single fragment back to the plate. And then once you're happy that you've got it all lined up, it's not a very difficult remainder of the case because all you do now is just secure them to each other so i think and, that's that's a great way and is this one that could be could it be treated like non-operatively as well or or i guess a relative indication could be a polytrauma but is this one that that could be treated non-operatively you know i think you you probably if this was an isolated injury 
Um, and when you put her in a collar and cuff, you got a little bit better alignment, right? Because again, she is, these are trauma-based films. So right. it, it's hard to know what it'd actually look like if you sat her up. Um, but if if you had a shaft that was relatively well reduced under the under the head and the neck, I don't think it would be unreasonable to, you know, talk to a 62-year-old about saying, hey, this is a pretty low-risk uh, fracture in terms of surgical management. Um, you know, GT is pretty well, you know, undisplaced and the LT is undisplaced. You might do absolutely fine if you, if you let gravity kind of realign this for you. Um, and this might be one where I see them in a week, re-x-ray them and, and then have a chat at that point. Okay. Uh, what about this case here? Ooh, that was a bad injury. What about this one? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, this is one of those ones where you're kind of in between a rock and a hard place. So, yeah. um, you know, this unfortunate, uh, gentleman, 75, he's got a fractured dislocation, um, of his, of his proximal humerus. And, uh, he was, you know, unfortunately had a whole host of other problems. So he had spinal injuries and pelvic injuries and, uh, and was so sick that we couldn't actually take him to the OR for a week. And so he had a fractured dislocation with, um, a humeral head that was sitting on a joint for a week. And, and so at that point, you know, looking at his age, looking at the injury pattern and he's a smoker, I said to him, look, I, I think in your case, reconstructing it might be possible, but probably for him, you know, the right answer is going to do something like a reverse. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where we went ahead and did, did this for him. So here, here, this is him at, um, I think in about two and a half years post, post reverse, wow. um, doing pretty well, right. Uh, yeah. you know, functioning, functioning pretty well. He's got a little bit of HO there around the inferior, you know, border of his, of his, uh, replacement, but overall, I think his, his function was great. He got to return to all the things he wanted to do, could get his hand over his head, you know, take care of himself. And I would probably do something a little bit different today. Um, you know, I, I traditionally was a cementer of my reverses and I've yeah, gone non-cementing uh, only because of the revisions, but, um, but certainly I think, you know, he got a great, he got a great uh, outcome uh, from that, from that uh, injury. Yeah. And then, and then this last one here. Yeah. This is a great example of someone who, um, you know, she's 62, she's got, um, uh, surgical neck. And then you get the, you get the impression that that GT is also fractured. Um, but she's got chronic kidney disease. She's a smoker. And so she's someone who, you know, probably would do absolutely fine with non-operative management. And so we threw her in a sling, you know, again, on the, on the scapular Y view, you get a great view that this isn't, isn't really all that displaced. So she's now, I think, uh, I don't know if I sent you the, I don't, I don't know if I have the, the final films, but oh, she did, she healed. basically healed, she healed right there uh, <laughs> and, and did great. So, um, you know, just the variety of fractures, they're kind of showing you what, what can work and what can't. <laughs> well, Dr. Strozel, I think this was a, a great talk. We, you know, we dove deeply into uh, proximal humerus fractures, the pathoanatomy. We talked about the blood supply. We talked about treatment of, um, of one part through four part um, uh, fractures, different uh, uh, walk through some some cases. We talked about nailing um, some fractures, well, some key 
uh, key components of plating them. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast and come and talk about uh, proximal humerus fractures. Uh, before you go, is there anything that you would like the people to know? A lot of times we, at the end of our episodes, we, you know, allow our guests to, you know, if you have any social media plug that you want people to follow you on, you can, you know, feel free to say that or, you know, anything that you, any last words you want to say to the, the guests on proximal humerus fractures or to have them follow you or anything? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I love talking about, uh, I love talking about proximal humerus fractures. I love talking about uh, fractures in general. So, um, you know, anyone can reach out to me. Um, my ortho, it's ortho strelzo is the, uh, is my Twitter handle. Um, and, uh, but by all means, look me up uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, fire me an email if anyone's got uh, questions about uh, trauma care and, and proximal humerus care. Um, and it's been a pleasure to be on the show and, and talk about something that uh, I, I love, I love to uh, talk about, love to fix. And it's obviously a, a fascinating area of ongoing uh, controversy. So appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Everybody listening, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please go and leave a review and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to hit that subscribe button and tune in again next week for uh, another episode of the Nail the Door Podcast.